Good morning, Northampton. It's time to wake up and smell the fake and bacon and get yourself a servant of vegan radio. Vegan radio. Vegan radio. Hello and welcome to another version of Vegan Radio on WXOJLP Northampton and podcasting at www.veganradio.com. On today's show, we have the amazing Annie Dodge rescue story, a story about a cow in Vermont. <laughs> What's that cow doing, Derek? He escaped. He was rescued, and I helped. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned, listeners. You know you're Jones in for tofu. We're also debuting two new features, a local activist feature and also a music segment. Yes, we got music and activists. Coming at you. Coming at you on Vegan Radio. And we got the Naked News featuring a whale. It's cold on the Naked News. Oh, nipply. (laughs) And we got whales and celebrities and all that crazy vegan stuff going on that you've come to love from Vegan Radio. WXOJLP Northampton. 103.3 103.3 FM and www.veganradio.com Vegan Radio Hello and welcome to the Naked News on Vegan Radio. This is Megan Shackleford and Derek Blank Goodwin and we're going to give it to you naked. <laughs> Okay, first, we have a sweet story of a daring rescue of a whale off the Falonies Islands. A humpback whale freed by divers from a tangle of crab trap lines near the Farallone Islands nudged its rescuers and flapped around in what marine experts said was a rare and remarkable encounter. It felt to me like it was thanking us, knowing that it was free and that we had helped it, James Mosquito, one of the rescue divers, said Tuesday. It stopped about a foot away from me, pushed me around a little bit, and had some fun. Sunday's daring rescue is the first successful attempt on the West Coast to free an entangled humpback. The 45 to 50 foot female humpback, estimated to weigh 50 tons. 50 tons? What size are these tons we're talking? Estimated to weigh 50 tons was on the humpback's usual migratory route between the northern California coast and Baja, California when it became entangled in the nylon ropes that link crab pots. Rescue team members perform what was seen as a very risky maneuver because the mere flip of a humpback's massive tail can kill a person. About 20 crab pot ropes, which are 240 feet long with weights every 60 feet, were wrapped around the animal. Rope was wrapped at least four times around the tail, the back, and the left front flipper, and there was a line in the whale's mouth. The crab pot lines were cinched so tight that the rope was digging into the animal's blubber and leaving visible cuts. The combined weight was pulling the whale downward, forcing it to struggle mightily to keep its blowhole out of the water. Mm. Four divers spent about an hour cutting the ropes with a special curved knife. Rescuers said the whale floated passively in the water the whole time, giving off a strange kind of vibration. A member of the team named Mosquito said that while he was cutting the line going through the whale's mouth, her her eye was watching him and that it was an epic moment in his life. When the whale realized it was free, it began swimming around in circles. Mosquito said it swam to each diver, nuzzled him, and then swam to the next one. Quote, Mm. it seemed kind of affectionate, like a dog that's happy to see you. 
I never felt threatened. It was an amazing, unbelievable experience, end quote. That sounds pretty cool. Very I'd like sweet. to get nuzzled by a whale. This is Derek Goodwin, and I'm 20 nautical miles below sea level, here with a humpback whale named Willie, who's nuzzling up against me. It kind of tickles, I have to say. Oh, Willie. Oh, Willie, no. <laughs> oh, I, I, I better surface. Our next story, an upcoming film starring Pig spurs debate about humane farming. The feature film release of Charlotte's Web, scheduled for September 2006, stars a female pig rescued from slaughter and currently living on a farmed animal sanctuary in Australia. The pig named Willie tours with her new caretaker as she advocates banning gestation crates, saying, Quote, in an intensive piggery, there is row after row of pregnant females in tiny metal stalls, barely able to move, end quote. The caretaker is asking Australian pig farmers to use exclusively free-range and group housing systems, although one industry representative says only a 3 to 5% of Australia is suitable for free-range pigs. Sounds like bull to me. Sounds like piggery to me. The catalyst for this debate, Willie, who plays Wilbur in the film, was purchased from Paramount Pictures, which based its upcoming film on the 1952 book written by E.B. White. Other pigs involved with the movie are also getting attention for farmed animal protection issues in Australia and the U.S. The New South Wales-based group Voiceless appeared with Daisy the Pig on December 5th when the group released a new report on the treatment of farm pigs in Australia. According to Voiceless... 90% of Christmas hams come from factory farms with the pigs living in cramped concrete floor indoor cages. In the U.S., two pigs from the California Sanctuary Animal Place were recorded by film sound crews and their grunts will also be used in Charlotte's Web. I also heard the Australians are uh, trying to market kangaroo meat now. They are not. There's a contest to um, see... Uh, who can come up with a name for kangaroo meat that will uh, allow consumers not to feel guilty about eating it. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like how they call pigs pork. (laughs) So Vegan Radio is sad to report the passing of Richard Pryor, who left us on December 10th. Richard Pryor may have been sidelined by MS, but he was so adamantly opposed to the use of animals in research, even for his own disease, that he used his Christmas card to discourage donations to charities that still fund such tests. He often said, quote, test on me, end quote. He's been honored by PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, for saving baby elephants in Botswana targeted for circuses. In 2000, as Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus was preparing to open at Madison Square Garden, Pryor gave the Big Top's first African-American ringmaster something to think about. While I'm hardly one to complain about a young African-American making an honest living, Pryor wrote in a letter to Jonathan Lee Iverson, quote, I urge you to ask yourself just how honorable it is to preside over the abuse and suffering of animals, end quote. Pryor also crusaded against Burger King with Alec Baldwin. They sent letters asking owners of Burger King franchises to use their clout to get the fast food corporation to meet or exceed the animal welfare standards set by its chief competitor, McDonald's. If you would that shouldn't like... be too hard to do. Yeah. If you would like to make a donation in memory of Richard Pryor, you can do so at PryorsPlanet.com. 
Richard's website for his animal activism. You can find a link to that website on our show notes at veganradio.com. White folks do things a lot different than niggas. They eat quiet as you be on that. Pass the potatoes. Thank you, darling. Could I have a bit of that sauce? How are the kids coming along with their studies? Think we'll be having sexual intercourse this evening? We're not. Well, what the heck? And now our next story, xenotransplantation allowed in New Zealand. I have no idea what xenotransplantation is. <laughs> do you think our listeners do? Well, it could have something to do with uh, xeno, you know, xenophobia is a fear of foreigners. Ah. Um, listeners. Lots of xenos coming over to... Don't pay any attention to Derek. Get animal parts put into them. Here's the real story. The way is open for animal body parts to be transplanted into humans after a high-powered report to the government. The Bioethics Council report on xenotransplantation, the transplanting of living cells, tissues, or organs from one species to another, has recommended the practice be allowed in New Zealand. Health advocates have welcomed the decision, which offers potential relief to various conditions such as Parkinson's disease and diabetes, as well as an alternative to human organ donation. They're using uh, animal organs to treat people who are dying from eating animals. Martin Wilkinson, the head of the working group that made the recommendation, said cultural, ethical, and spiritual concerns about the technology were not enough to justify prohibition. Trials of xenotransplantation are already underway overseas, including work by New Zealand company Living Cell Technologies, formerly Diatrans. When Living Cell Technologies' application to implant insulin-producing pig cells into diabetics was turned down by the New Zealand Health Ministry in 2001, it took its work to the U.S. Good old U.S. of A. We'll, we'll do anything here. <laughs> of course. Groups have raised concerns about the ethical issue of cross-species transplantation and the matter of animal rights. Green Party leader Jeanette Fitzsimmons said a concern was the risk of transferring a virus from animals to humans. Animal welfare was an additional concern, but Fitzsimmons said as long as the animals were afforded a high standard of care, this issue did not outweigh the concern of a possible viral outbreak. We know animals are always afforded a high standard of care <laughs> when they're being used as slaves. Yes. Well, high standard of care in factory farms. I mean, come on. So next up, our last story for national news. Too many sugar cookies for <laughs> Megan. Well, it is it is the Christmas season. That is when the sugar cookies are made. Yeah. Moby strikes out at misogyny. Come on, I don't believe it. In what? his online journal, vegan musician Moby is stirring up trouble with Eminem again, saying that the rapper has blood on his hands for using misogynistic lyrics that he feels inspire violence towards women. The words are in your mouth. The blood is on your hands. Who are you? <laughs> Who are you, and what did you do with my co-host, Derek Goodwin? <laughs> this from Moby's Journal. Quote, I'd like to write about misogyny. A few years ago, when the prodigy released Smack My Bitch Up, I spoke up and criticized a song for being overtly misogynistic and irresponsible. I was in turn criticized on radio for being too uptight and not being relaxed enough to appreciate the humor in misogyny. Relax, this won't hurt a bit. 
two months after Smack My Bitch Up was released, I went to visit a friend of mine who was in, in the hospital after being beaten by her boyfriend. She had brain damage and multiple fractures due to his pushing her down a flight of concrete stairs. Misogyny, as you all might know, is not funny. It's not a joke, and it should not be treated lightly, and now we find out that a British man who's obsessed with Eminem killed a woman with a metal baseball bat and stuffed her body into a suitcase. Am I being too uptight for not seeing the humor in this? Should I relax and see the comedy in a misogynist beating a woman to death? Before this British man brutally brutally killed this woman, he was singing Eminem songs in a karaoke bar. Maybe there's no connection. Maybe there is. That should be illegal, too. Yeah. It's disgusting that we even have to ask that question. Homophobia and misogyny are disgusting and vile and represent the worst and most atavistic elements of the human spirit. I asked a rhetorical question a few years ago, which was, if a musician made a record wherein he talked about killing blacks and Jews, would he get covered in the press and played on radio and MTV? If the answer is no, as it should be, then why is radio and MTV filled with music that has lyrics about killing and brutalizing women and gays? Is it somehow less offensive when women and gays are brutalized and killed? Any employee of a record company or journalist or radio programmer or MTV employee who has promoted and celebrated misogynistic or homophobic music should be ashamed. You have blood on your hands and you should be deeply, deeply troubled at the culture that you've helped to create. End quote. We here at Vegan Radio agree with Moby and hope that the music industry will clean up their act. We also hope Eminem won't urge his fans to beat Moby up as he has in the past. Man, I hope somebody beats Eminem up. Yeah, we need some uh, vegan warriors to go out there and... We have some... Well, we have a warrior um, from the group Bitchin' Animal who's written a song about Eminem. It's pretty (laughs) funny. You should check it out. If all of you men are making money off of calling us bitches, then I'll just do it myself. But I'll be making some switches. See, Eminem will be my... Bitch for a while, I'll bend them over hard, but I'll do it with style. I ain't got no shits this time of year. I ain't got no shits this time of year. For all you frat boys dissing on the queen. Is it okay to say bitch? I hope so. Okay. I don't know. Maybe there might be a limit on how many times you can say it in <laughs> a minute or something. Well, it's a, it's a music group. So, Bitch and Animal, um, one of my favorite groups. Hopefully yours. Really? One of your favorites? Yeah. Wow. Bitch and Animal? Come on. They're classic. They broke up. Well, they're still my favorite. They're no Radiohead. Anyways, they have a song. <laughs> they have a song about Eminem. Bitch, are you vegan? They, <laughs> I don't know. I think they drink rice milk though. Really? But um, they have a song about Eminem taking it in the rear. <laughs> and uh, taking I, what in the rear? <laughs> <laughs> oh, listeners, you figure it out. That song about the closet. It reminds me of being gay. Hey, Eminem, why don't you leave the Pride Parade and show the queers you ain't afraid to take it in the rear from Holly Near or Britney Spear. Not quite a girl, not quite a woman. How about a butch dyke riding your bike? How about you slip on a skirt and I'll slip you my shirt to put on after I put it in? I wish Howard Zinn would run for president. I'm so sick and tired. So check out Bitch and Animal. Bitch and Animal. <laughs> and the vegan radio show notes at veganradio.com. Okay, next up. The local news. The local news. El loco. This is Jerry Cook with the film Peaceable Kingdom. I'm a pro activist uh, who calls North Carolina home. I'm here in Massachusetts. And you are listening to Vegan Radio on WXOJ Northampton 103.3 FM and on the web at www.veganradio.com. 
And now we're going to talk about the local news, El Loco, El Crazy, with El Crazy Gesto, co-hosto. It's no, no crazy gesto. You're the gesto with the gusto, El I'm Loco, Megan Shackleford. I'm no guest, I'm the co-host. The gesto on the canvas of my you don't speak any radio program. We wanted to talk about the uh, potluck we had December 11th. It was quite successful, wasn't it? It was very successful. It was probably about 45 people there. Somewhere between 45 and 1,000. <laughs> there was definitely 45. Did you count 45? Yep. I was telling people 60. 60? Well, I, I mean, know. there were at least 45. I was just, you know, guesstimating. Yeah. There were at least 45, possibly 60. Wow. And there was a lot of good food. For Florence, that's like huge. That's probably the biggest gathering ever in Florence. Ever. Lots of smorgasbord of vegan delights. People made some really great tasting things. It wasn't a yep. it wasn't a potluck filled with bad items. Up till December eleventh we we were pretty disappointed with the vegan scene in Northampton, but people really came and rallied around this one and uh, And the great thing was that there were, hope. there were people there who weren't vegan or vegetarian and that's who i want to see there actually and there was all age ranges and uh body types <laughs> yeah <laughs> many different body types there that's was kooky good. vegans there was normal vegans and good looking Derek vegans falls like into me. the category of kooky vegans <laughs> listeners <laughs> <laughs> that's who he was looking for really <laughs> <laughs> or that's who was looking for you we didn't have time to do the speed dating, but maybe next one. <laughs> <laughs> maybe somebody could initiate that. We're going to have a uh, vegan auction, and we're going to auction Megan off. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to auction you off in an apron, and you're going to do... Try to you're going to clean... We're going to try to get five or ten bucks to put towards the uh, show. <laughs> People are going to pay 20 bucks for you, and then they're going to make you clean their kitchen in, in just an apron, and you have to say oh. over and over again, Naked news! Naked, naked news! Naked, naked news! Naked news! <laughs> All right. No more sugar for Megan. We need an intervention. Intervention for Megan. Anyways, y'all, what's going on is that we have decided that we will have the potlucks um, every second Sunday of the month. And that means the next potluck is January 8th. At Evolution at 5.30 p.m. Chestnut Street. 22 Chestnut Street. Check our show notes for more info. 5.30 p.m. www.veganradio.com. And it will be a vegan potluck again. And hopefully we will have, um, we'll either have a some kind of movie or a speaker. And or speed dating. No speed dating. No? That's going to be on your own time. Damn. <laughs> but it should, by the looks of the past potluck, it should prove to be another amazing potluck. Okay, enough about that. All right. So the next thing in local news is there is a neighborhood lending library being created in our very own Florence. Wow. This is at 8 High Street. Florence is the new uh, Northampton. Yeah, it is. It's a lot going on. Oh, yeah. A lot of vegetarian activism going on. And I live there in a pink house. <laughs> it's true. So this neighborhood lending library takes place at 8 High Street in Florence, and their first meeting is tonight, 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 December 21st, 7 p.m. at 8 High Street in Florence. So what the, the neighborhood lending library is about, 
um, is sharing resources, getting to know your neighbors, building community, and making sure that people know that knowledge is a human right. And the people who come to this meeting would be helping with planning, categorizing, staffing the library, and um, book and bookshelf donations are welcome. You can lend books to the library and reclaim them. So you can call 586-8031 with questions or for more info. It's off Chestnut Street, which okay. is off Main Street. And we have one more local news story. What's yes, that? Yes, we do. UMass Amherst is going to add a vegan station to the renovated dining hall. Very no exciting. Way. A vegan yep. station? Yep. Is that like vegan radio? The Berkshire Dining Commons at the University of Massachusetts will close on January 2nd to undergo a $10 million renovation. That's a lot of vegan food. <laughs> I don't think it'll be all vegan food. Oh. After the renovation, Berkshire will be the largest dining commons on campus. The project will increase seating from 680 to 800. And once completed, the traditional kitchen setup will be gone, replaced with individual cooking stations featuring everything from vegan dishes to brick oven pizzas. The project is scheduled to be completed in August so it can open for business when students return to campus next fall. Now that's exciting news. It is. I'm going to go back to school now. <laughs> Not to UMass Amherst. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's it. That's, that's it for local it. news. And I'm Derek Goodwin. I'm Megan Checkford. And you're listening to Vegan, Vegan Radio. Radio on WXOJLP Northampton 103.3 FM and on Podcast the web. Podcast at www.veganradio.com. And check our show notes for all the cool stuff we talked about. Vegan Radio. Crunchy on the outside, creamy on the inside, and 100% gristle-free. So we have a new segment on today's show. We're going to start featuring some music every week by vegan or vegetarian musicians. Typically, the show format is going to be that we're going to interview the musician and play some of their music. But for our first song that's highlighted, we have no idea what happened to the band. Can't yep, locate them. Can't find them in Google or anything, but uh, we found a copy of their CD. It's at least 10 years old or maybe more. Yes. It's, they're called They Eat Their Own. Yep. Researched by Matthew Shackelford, my Megan's, brother. Megan's brother dug up the CD for us. Uh, Megan and I used to listen to this song when we first met, and uh, it's a pretty cool song called Cancer Food. Listen to it. Listen to it. Learn it. Love it. Why, why do you like this song? <laughs> Because it's so classic 80s kind of rock. Yeah. And, and you know, promoting the vegan agenda. The vegan agenda. What's, <laughs> what's your favorite line out of it? Oh, your shit shouldn't smell so putrid Megan, unless you, you eat it too. Cancer food. Cancer food. Right. <laughs> they eat their own cancer food on vegan radio.
All right. That was Cancer Food by They Eat Their Own. If anyone out there knows anything about the whereabouts of the members of that band these days, what they're up to, check us out at our website, www.veganradio.com, and uh, leave us a note. And also, if you're a musician and a vegan and you want to contribute to the show, get in touch with us through our website. You're listening to Vegan Radio, www.veganradio.com. This next segment is going to be a review of the Becoming Animal art exhibition that's at Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts. That is still going on. It's still going on. It's been going on for a while. Um, PETA endorsed this exhibit, um, but our reviewer, local art historian Chelsea Dacre-Smith, is going to uh, look a little deeper into the show. And, and PETA maybe... endorsed that exhibit at Mass Mocha? They did. And, um, That's very I'm not surprising. Sure why, but... <laughs> that makes no sense. There's like tigers with arrows stuck that in their body. That was a different exhibit. Oh. <laughs> well, so. then, I guess PETA does know what they're doing. Well, that's to be determined. Chelsea, Chelsea is going to look at it from the vegan perspective More and, closely. and see what the conclusion is. All right. And here she is. An argument could be made that art as a tradition has exploited animals. The first prehistoric cave paintings were made with animal blood as a binder for pigments. In the Middle Ages, Anglo-Saxon manuscripts like the Book of Kells were made from pages of vellum, scraped, stretched, and dried calfskins. Large Gothic panel paintings required a thick surface of gesso, a mixture of rabbits boiled down to a glue-like substance. In the Renaissance, four animals represented the temperaments or humors of the body. These animals were believed in the 16th century to have been in perfect harmony before the fall of Adam and Eve. Albert Durer portrayed these creatures in his 1504 engraving. The melancholic elk was thought to represent a bitterness of the spirit. The choleric or angered cat was impatient and full of revenge. The phlegmatic and sluggish ox represented gluttony and sloth. And finally, the sensual rabbit with an overly active blood circulation was destined to spread lust in harmful ways. In Durer's print, the cat is on the verge of chasing a mouse as Eve offers Adam the apple, and in case we're missing his point concerning the careful balance of nature at stake here, a goat in the distant background balances precariously atop a sharp, pointy cliff. Within the overwhelming increase of urban growth and social ills in the wake of the Industrial Revolution, German artist Franz Marc decides, after experiencing the beginning horrors of the First World War, that animals are the only pure, innocent, spiritual, and nurturing beings worthy of being painted in art. Marc's large blue horses of 1911 nestle trees, and the herd's round, strong backs are in sync with the surrounding landscape. Mark lost his life in the very war he was painting against, and the Nazis in 1937 banned his popular expressionist ideals under the label of degenerate. In the historical context where even a celebrated environmentalist illustrator like Audubon killed rare birds and stuck them with pins in order to paint them to protect them, what does the contemplation of animals and art offer us today? Mass Mocha gives one answer, the agenda of becoming animal. In a post-industrial space where mill workers once made leather shoes, the theme begins with a large black birdcage filled with live finches and books. Becoming animal, or in this case bird, combines the collecting world of animal possessions within an aviary. 
The ingredients are simple. A large dead tree, bird seed, and the necessities of most literate people. A collection of books, poems, and literary articles. The finches chirp and fly around in Mark Dion's Library for the Birds of Massachusetts, a commissioned work for Mass Mocha. The proportions of the installation are the dimensions of a cage intended for a flock of humans, not birds. After several moments of observation in the aviary, it's amusing to note how some of the birds aggressively tear apart pages of the New Yorker and relieve themselves on the very books that tell us how to save the planet. Large digital prints by Nicholas Lampert frame one section of the gallery space in Becoming Animal. Lampert's fabrications are part animal and part machine, an evolution of biology melded with technology in a surreal hybrid of insect leg and wheel, kangaroo head and engine piston. Lampert's animals remind the viewer of debates concerning genetic alterations, yet his gritty, archaic mechanisms recall the Industrial Revolution. Lampert's digital prints are also reminiscent of a body of work by a neo-avant-garde group of architects. In the 1960s, British Archigram created drawings of large machines that looked part locus. These Cold War-era sketches were intended to be a type of imaginary mechanized insect with the sole purpose of surviving post-apocalyptic life on Earth. With Lampert's work, it seems more accurate that these ominous creatures will participate in our demise as we have altered their previous existence. The constant grunts and sighs of a tortoise can be heard in the background of the art on view, and a breeze is generated with fans. Their purpose is to fill white nylon sails that divide two large screens featuring George, the last tortoise from the Galapagos Islands of Pinta. In a brief continuous clip by Rachel Berwick, Lonesome George appears from the water and is startled by what can only be perceived as us, since as the viewer we are placed directly in front of this being who is struggling to survive. George shrinks back into his carapace until the clip repeats and he emerges again. A feeling of guilt is almost palpable in this gallery corner, as it is clear that George cannot proceed forward since we are standing in his way. The artist manipulates our placement in relation to the work through the spatial device of the large sails, an iconographic representation of early settlers and colonial aspirations. A museum retrospective on animals would hardly be complete without a debate on genetics and animal testing. Kathy High's installation, Embracing Animal, contains two lab rats, Echo and Flowers. The rats were purchased from a lab by High and have altered DNA that will eventually shorten their lifespan as well as their offsprings. Since High has Crohn's disease, the artist recognizes and ultimately rejects the studies scientists have made on animals in order to help cure her and others with this chronic disease. High has placed her labrad pets in a series of cages, complete with background music. There are also several large glass test tubes with a small LCD monitor screen at the bottom of each. The screens flash multiple images of a nude woman, perhaps the artist, with a white rat mask over her head. She moves and twitches like a rat, and her hairless skin and breasts contrast with her head as a possible mutation. With these moving images of increasing agitation, high hints at the connection of how men of science and medicine treated and tried to cure the female body, an object labeled in the 19th century as hysterical and irrational. 
This idea is reiterated in the nickname of Barbies she has given to her pair of pet rats. One work in Becoming Animal by the Japanese artist Motohiko Odani features a taxidermy baby deer with metal traction devices clamped to all four legs. The combination of the still creature with trapped limbs is disturbing and seductive at the same time. In observing this piece entitled Erectro, one worries about the same blurred line of purchasing materials for art that in reality participate in the monetary profit of a trade that contributes to animal cruelty like taxidermy. Becoming animal artist Kathy High states in the accompanying exhibition catalog that she is not an animal activist, although her work intersects similar beliefs. The art patron then has to question the complications of using animals and animal parts for art, even if the overarching message of the exhibition is a plea to the public for the participation against current negative political impacts on this kingdom. Mass Mocha's Becoming Animal, Contemporary Art in the Animal Kingdom closes February 12th. It is sponsored in part by PETA. This is Chelsea Dacre-Smith for Vegan Radio. So it's better, my sweet Hi, this is Derek Goodwin, and you're listening to Vegan Radio. The next segment of our show is going to be about a cow rescue that took place in Vermont that I actually was privileged enough to be part of. The rescue was coordinated by a farm sanctuary, and we are going to get the story through different perspectives of a few people involved. Trisha Ritterbush, who's the communications director at Farm Sanctuary, she's going to kind of give an overview. Bill and Barbara Chamberlain, who are the couple who live in Vermont that discovered the cow eating birdseed on their property. And then there's Susie Costin, who is the caretaker at Farm Sanctuary. She's going to uh, give us the greedy details about how this cow came to be rescued. I was also part of the rescue. I went up to Vermont when Farm Sanctuary called me. I'm a photographer, and they asked me to come up and photograph the rescue for them. And I went up to Vermont and helped Susie and a few other people from Farm Sanctuary get Annie onto a truck and back down to Farm Sanctuary in Watkins Glen, New York. To wrap up the story, we're going to have a phone interview that Megan and I conducted with Susie Costin a few days ago, and she's going to let us know how it all ended up for Annie Dodge. So let's begin with Trisha Ritterbush. We became aware of the cow after some longtime members of Farm Sanctuary, um, Barbara and Bill uh, Chamberlain. Um, were They live in Salisbury, Vermont, and uh, they had noticed in the evenings that a cow would enter their yard and eat some food that they had uh, scattered out and about for other animals. In the uh, early part of May, uh, we had uh, to leave the house for a number of days, and uh, the girl that came to put out the bird food told us a moose kept coming around to the premises. She never saw it, but uh, she saw the the footprints it left. We studied the footprints, and they didn't look like uh, most footprints to us. They were more round, and to make a long story short, they were the prints of Annie the cow, Annie Dodge, as she is now known. 
she would come around, apparently, to uh, help herself at the uh, bird feeding station where we set out sunflower seeds and coarse cracked corn. That was to her liking. Our first glimpse of her was in the twilight. This ghostly white face appeared uh, in, in the dim light. Uh, that was terribly exciting. This happened day after day, and the uh, question, uh, should we do something about it? The cow kept visiting uh, every night, and so they hauled around to find out whose cow this was, um, and they found that an auction house in the county admitted that a cow had gone missing, uh, but the cow had no markings or tags. So they had been no record of ownership for the cow. And the auction house actually offered to shoot and slaughter the cow, and they could pay the auction house $500 for the, the cow's meat. If it $500, he would shoot it, for the, and we could have the meat, he said. But I must say, I have to add to that, that we said no. I said, no, we want to rescue it. <laughs> Unusual to him. But he, he was quite nice about it. He said, well, if you want to catch it, we can bring some uh, movable fences. But we knew that was absolutely impossible here to begin to get a fence around her yet, you know. There's just no point even trying. They had another idea in mind, of course, and so they called Farm Sanctuary. Right outside uh, our property, there is uh, about two square miles of woodlot. Apparently, the cow would disappear into these woods uh, after uh, leaving our feeding stations and uh, it had plenty of room to get lost in. When, when eventually we got the idea of trying to rescue it, the question was, how do you get a hold of a cow roaming around in two square miles of woods? The first thing I did about it was to look up on the web, uh, Google. There were many entries on that score. One of the first ones I saw had to do with a case in Cincinnati. A cow got loose in a, uh, a public park of some kind. Before it was all over, there were helicopters involved, a SWAT team with tranquilizer guns. <laughs> By sheer coincidence, the Cincinnati cow that Bill found on Google happened to be another farm sanctuary rescue, and I'll let Susie tell that story. Since he jumped out of a slaughterhouse, went across a wall, uh, was on the run for about 11 days, and they monitored the whole thing through the papers and on the news. So she was very like popular with everyone. So people didn't want to see her get slaughtered. So they actually had to trank her. So they tranquilized her with a gun, just like we did with the recent rescue, um, because she was so wired. Um, and we brought her here. We were really worried because she was a jumper. And within two days, she'd already she smashed the gates and did get out. And she went right into our herd and hasn't left since. We started working with them on getting the cow more comfortable with humans um, because as time was passing and as months were passing and this cow was without a herd, she was progressively getting more and more anxious. Cows tend to, they, they like to be with other cows and when they're not with other animals of their own species, they, they tend to have a really hard time adjusting and socializing with, with any other, with humans or any other animals. So she would disappear actually during the day. They never knew where she went, but she would come every evening because they started putting food out for her. But we started talking to her. By, uh, by now, our grandson had named her Annie, and we started talking to her, uh, going out, you know, and then bringing grain, and she'd keep her distance. She was so afraid of everything. She, she began to be willing to kind of hang around. If, if, if I came out, Bill, she didn't like the male voice. 
she was very much afraid of a man's voice. And so that didn't work. But, you know, uh, she would hang around, and we began to put a little hay out at the same time and then a little water <laughs> over by the bird feeders, and little by little to move them a few feet a day toward that barn, which is 300 feet away or so. So every day she'd get a little closer. But when she got near the barn, finally, and she looked up and saw the barn, she ran off or something about it. She had her head down, you know, grazing, and apparently she must have known the barn was there, but she suddenly something spooked her, and so that we had to kind of start over, and uh, little by little she got closer to the barn. <laughs> took six months. Um, and then we were working with her and a local vet um, to try to figure out how to uh, get the cow calm enough so that uh, they could bring her into their barn. And then as soon as they brought her into the barn, then then we uh, would bring a transport vehicle out and uh, be able to um, to transport her back here to Farm Sanctuary. It was the corn, that the, the cracked corn, but then we started to buy the 18% uh, sweet grain that Kate uh, recommended, and we put that out, and uh, she loved that, of course. And so there was the corn and the grain and the hay, and uh, the water tub moved also, <laughs> little by little, and she got more and more, so I could finally go out with a pail, and then she'd come up to, toward me. Uh, just one magic moment, I was able to reach out and touch her nose just, just once. She was always somewhat paranoid all through that time, you know, and easily spooked. Of course, I was a little afraid of her, too. <laughs> I didn't know, you know. We've never had a cow around. We've never been near a cow. So she seemed quite big, and she was extremely agile, extremely lively, and uh, sometimes she would just kick up her heels. We had had young goats, and we know what fun they are to watch them play, and she was she would play almost like a young goat sometimes, you know, jump up and kind of run. Fast forward five months, <laughs> that's how long it took to get her comfortable enough to enter the barn. And on Tuesday night, uh, last Tuesday night, we got a call because uh, she went into the barn uh, on her own accord and they shut the door behind. And so, um, so we immediately hopped in our transport vehicles and headed out. We put the grain right on the edge of the barn floor and then little by little she got in farther and farther. That was maybe a month of that. Bill, meanwhile, daytimes when she wasn't around, he made... He fixed gates, and he made a very foolproof latch that if I swung it from a distance, it would stick, you know. Of course, we moved all our stuff out of the barn, and so she just had the barn except for a very few things in the back, and uh, we took all the nails out of the post, everything that we thought could hurt her, and got it all ready, put more water in there, started putting hay in there. And, you know, little by little she went in, but I knew she could get out in such a hurry that we were afraid to try to slam that gate yet. She took a liking to the wild apples, so we started leaving a trail of wild apples in there every night. And we let it through the post so that if she went after them, she'd kind of be, it'd be harder for her to get out in a hurry. And so she would follow this trail in, you know, like, like Hansel and Gretel's uh, crumbs, <laughs> follow this trail. And eventually, when that night came that they were ready to come and get her, she did go in and Bill's latch worked and everything worked. So we miss her. After <laughs> praise, Kate and Sue and you guys, you had just exactly the right feeling for what to do, particularly the tranquilizer dosage. Tranquilize the cow without uh, flooring it. It was mm. still able to uh, walk around and uh, 
that saved a lot of trouble in getting it on to your transporter. One of the great coincidences about this story is that Annie ended up at the home of Bill and Barbara, who just happened to be Farm Sanctuary members. We, we've been members uh, through the years, but perhaps not always keeping it up the way we should. But we've since I, I think almost since when you started, we it seems to me it's been a long time that we've been familiar with Farm Sanctuary and. Uh, uh, when we could, you know, contributing a little to it. So uh, I guess you'd call us members. After we finally got Annie on the truck at the Chamberlain's, it was about a six-hour drive back to Farm Sanctuary in Watkins Glen. Uh, we arrived there sometime after midnight, and, of course, we are all very tired and road-weary, but um, we had to get Annie into the cow barn. We isolated her uh, for a little while, but... Uh, so that she was in a stall by herself, but there were other cows that came into the barn and immediately started talking to her. It was, it was really beautiful, and um, you know she was she was very upset. So it, it, she wasn't ready to be released right away, and there was some worry that um, you know she had been out on her own too long and had become feral and might not uh, readjust to the other cows. What's going to happen is we have to wait and see if she how quickly she calms down like within 48 hours she's like already 100 percent better than she was she's not charging the fences she's not spinning in circles she's just kind of because we have cattle in the barn with her so she's calmed down just being around them um when they walk away she moves so she's definitely establishing herself as part of the herd so i'm guessing she'll be out with the main herd in less than a month and in less than a month, Megan and I called Susie back to find out what happened with Annie Dodge. Susie, um, we wanted you to tell us a little bit about what happened with Annie Dodge. What was the outcome? The outcome is fantastic. Um, Annie, when she first arrived, obviously, I think, I'm guessing you already know the beginning of the story, how yes. we got her. Okay. Well, when she first arrived, she was very scared. And um, a scared cow, in most cases, um, either gets out or attacks or tries to do anything to, you know, protect herself. So our biggest concern since it was the beginning of hunting season in New York was keeping her locked in the barn without her escaping and going on another wild ride wherever she might go. So we kept her in a pen and actually put four cows in with her. I'm not in the pen, but in the barn, and then locked everybody else out because they already had another area for shelter and they have water. So it worked out really well. And we did that for two weeks. And then she got used to them, and we put her with them for two weeks, and then we let the whole group out after that, and um, then introduced the rest of the herd. And she was thrilled. She's really happy and already a part of the herd. And I heard she connected especially with one of the cows there, Freedom? Yeah, she connected with Freedom, yeah, instantly connected with Freedom, which was really funny since they both escaped from slaughter. And now she's also best friends with Queenie. So the three of them, <laughs> the three cows that escape from slaughter are all together all the time. So I'm not really sure if they know or if it's just like a personality type, but they're, right. they're very close. Yeah. That's Maybe it's some kind of a great. club they have, you know, like the tough cow club or something. Yeah. <laughs> the strong-willed cow club. Oh, no. <laughs> they all have like tattoos and piercings. And <laughs> they may. They actually may. <laughs> She won't let us get really close to her, so there is a chance. <laughs> so there's a statue somewhere. She's st- she's still not she's still scared of humans. She's scared of humans. She's more leery actually than scared now, though. Um, you can come into the pasture and she's fine. She just hangs out 
back farther with Cincy, which is exactly what Cincy Freedom does, too. Mm -hmm. Cincy, um, she can stay behind most of the other cattle. So they're very good at, like, paying attention to when people come in and just kind of avoiding people. Right. Whereas Queenie goes right up to you. (laughs) Challenges, yeah. Goes up and tries to get you. Yes, Queenie, yeah, Queenie doesn't necessarily like people so much. I'm sure her experiences are, you know, reason enough, but... The other two are more of like an, an avoidance kind of thing. They're very passive. Right. Yeah, but they're doing great, and she's having a really good time. And so that wraps up the Annie Dodge story. Uh, thanks for listening. It was a great experience for me. And um, if you want to learn more, you can check out our show notes at www.veganradio.com. I'm going to hopefully get my uh, photos of the rescue up, and there will be some links to stories and to farm sanctuary and you can find out all kinds of great things and other other amazing rescues they rescue animals all the time they're amazing organization and you're listening to vegan radio on wxojlp northampton 103.3 fm and podcasting at www.veganradio.com Next up, we have a regular occurring feature, New England Local Activists. And this show will be featuring Ariana Birdie, soon to be a, a vegan, vegan birdie. birdie. I guess she's changing her name to vegan, which is quite interesting. Um, we have an interview with her, and she's a local activist who goes to Hampshire. Hampshire College. Yep. Home of the Hippies. Arianish Birdie, up next. On Vegan Radio. And we're here with Arianish Birdie, a local Northampton activist uh, who goes to Hampshire College and is changing her middle name to vegan. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you changing your name to vegan? Veganism is such a part of who I am. I figured what better way to include it in my identity than make it um, my middle name. It satisfies what I do being vegan and the activist in me because it allows me just another opportunity to talk about veganism to other people. Kind of works. A vegan birdie, yeah. right? I was actually writing an email um, to another activist friend of mine. And um, sometimes I like to just mix up my middle name, like my name around, I don't know, just to be cute or whatever. And it just came out of, like, I just typed it and it came out. And I looked at it and I thought, I think that's what could be my middle name. And it just <laughs> happened right there in those 30 seconds. How far along are you in the process? Um, I am looking, well, I have basically done everything. I just need to get my, change on my driver's license. And then once that's done, everything else will take care of itself. So, Does it cost money? It does cost money to legally change it. Um, I'm trying to see if I can just get on my driver's license because it's my middle name. So, yeah, it does cost money, though. You could get married and (laughs) change it then. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm going to wait on marriage for a while. (laughs) How old are you? I am 20 as of last Thursday. Wow, happy birthday. Thank you. I met you in uh, 2004 at the Animal Rights Conference in D.C., AR 2004, they called it. (laughs) I think I met you before you got the award, but at the final banquet dinner, they awarded you the Rosenberg Award. Yep. I still remember the cookie you gave me. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yes, free cookie. Oh, Sweet Mama's, our local vegan bakery. Yeah, good plug. (laughs) Could you tell us about that award and 
how you ended up getting it? It was weird. The award is for youth under the age 18 or under who has significantly contributed to ending the plight of farmed animals. And it's something that farm, farm animal reform movement gives out every year. I just barely made the deadline. I was turning 18 in a couple of months after. So I got the award, and it was just a really big honor. There's like an application process. Then basically he has a committee of people who deliberate and figure out who gives, gets the award. And they honored me and um, all the other award winners, past and future, at the national conference. Now you're at hippie Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> Hampshire's not so hippie anymore. You'd be no. surprised. Yeah. There are a lot of hipsters. And this pretty good diverse mix of people. Do you have any activism going on there? There is. I feel like this semester particularly, um, there's been a resurgence of activism, at least in the minds of people, which has been kind of nice. I feel like last year there was a lot of apathy, and that's definitely carried over into this year. You'd be surprised there's not as much activism as as there used to be in what Hampshire is known for. I think people are starting to realize that we're living in kind of crazy times, and if we don't act, that's it. <laughs> it's all over. Yeah. All right, do you have any animal rights groups going there? Um, right now, animal rights is happening through other organizations to the extent that it is. I'd like to – there was an organization last semester um, – last year, rather, but it has just kind of fills it out because – you know, people come and go, and there are projects, and people do work, more academic work some semesters. But um, I feel like the idea of veganism is getting out there a lot more. I have a project where I, ha- I have a magazine stand full of vegetarian starter kits, and I'm definitely refilling them a lot. So I think cool. people are getting them. And I don't think it's just one person taking, you know, 100 <laughs> and throwing them away. The it seems, carnivore. yeah, I check them frequently <laughs> and they're just, they slowly go down. So, oh, nice. yeah. You should put little um, radio tracking devices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> put them on the show. Someone's going vegan on campus. Yeah. Another big uh, activist thing you were involved in was organizing the Grassroots Animal Rights Conference in New York City. Yep. Uh, you want to tell us about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a big, it was a really big thing. Um, it happened last year, last um, end of March or beginning of May. It was a great project. It was really wonderful. 2005, yeah. March 31st. Not quite last year. Yeah, last school year, I should say, right, this, this calendar year. Um, I was the coordinator of the agenda committee, so I was in charge of all the um, workshops and keynotes, plenaries, demonstrations, trainings, anything that could go on to the agenda, I was um, the coordinator of. I calculated about 40 to 50 hours a week, not including my school. Wow. So, yeah, I feel like anything after that has just been a breeze. <laughs> well, we could use you at Vegan Radio. <laughs> I'd love to. Hours a week this week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'd be really the cool. Editing here has taken a while. Ariana Sverdi, our new <laughs> <intern. laughs> vegan radio. That was hey, quick. Vegan hey, vegan birdie. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Ariana Sverdi. She's changing her middle name to vegan, so she'll be a vegan birdie. And she's a great local activist in New England. 
where Vegan Radio comes from if you're listening to our podcast. If you're listening to our broadcast, then you are listening to WXOJLP Northampton 103.3 FM. Also on the web at www.veganradio.com. Okay, listeners, that's the end of our show. We've got a great show coming up for you next time. The New Year's special featuring the story of Megan and Derek and our 10-year vegan anniversary. That's right, listeners. 10 years we've been vegan as of January 1st. And I know you're excited to hear about how it all came about. How it all began, as Sarah Kramer would say. Yep. We hope you all have some happy holidays because... You know you're Jones and for tofu. You know you're Jones and for tofu. Your family might be Jones and for something different. We hope it's not too disturbing what they'll be pulling out of the oven. Please eat your tofu tofurkey. Tofu tofurkey. Save some animals. Holiday roast. Nut loaf. There's so many options for these holidays. Yep. Can't go wrong. Just (laughs) stay the vegan path. Stay the vegan path. Make some Christmas cookies and spread the love. Because we're going to be spreading love without you. See you in two weeks. <laughs> you know you're jonesing for some tofu. Okay, Derek, oh my God. You're, every time you want to say something, it's our you theme. Just, you it's just our say logo. that. But it, it's already saying it in it's the our background. Credo. It's, but our it's saying creed. it in the background. That's why I'm trying to sync up with it. We love you. Say goodbye to our listeners. Goodbye. Bye bye.